Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. And welcome to episode six of Out with Susie Ruffle. I hope you are doing really well today. We are still in lockdown here in the UK. So again, I'm coming to you from my little studio slash massive cupboard. It's such a strange time and I'm I'm finding it very up and down. On the whole, I've been fine. But for some reason, this week felt tough. I'm really missing my family and friends and I'm missing doing stand up. I mean, who knows when I'll be able to do that again. I'm mentioning this because this podcast is really giving my weeks a sense of structure and achievement. So I want to thank you for listening. I'm so chuffed that I'm managing to put out a show every week, some pre-recorded before all of this, and some have been recorded down the line, which is tech speak for over the internet, which I learned last week. It's not just me, of course, it's the whole team at Keep It Light Media and especially Michael, my producer. So thanks to those guys too. I've received lots of messages and emails saying this pod is helping you through lockdown. So thank you for that. As ever, if you'd like to get in touch, the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com and please do rate, review and share. I know I sound like a broken record, but I have to say it every week. Right, on with the show. As always, we start with some stories from our wonderful listeners. The first one today is from Alex and... It's just beautiful. I grew up in a fairly liberal household in the West Midlands with a bit of a quirky family arrangement, several divorces, remarriages, as well as a few adoptions. So my family have always been fairly open to slightly more modern ideas. However, I went to a very conservative independent Christian school from the age of three to 16, which was where I was taught about morals that guided my childhood and early teens. I never really knew what gay was, but in hindsight, clearly had huge crushes on my male friends at the time. Despite the fact I was nearly always hanging around with the girls. As my year four PE teacher put it in my school report, Alex prefers to sit at the side of the pitch and make daisy chains with the girls rather than play football. He really should involve himself more with the boys. Something that I think the school would argue I've taken a bit too literally now living out gay life at university. The school was conservative in every sense of the word and unfortunately both the students and the staff were openly homophobic and often encouraged each other. I remember an incident where a cookery teacher openly said that if her son came out she would disown him and throw him out. We were 13 at the time. And another occasion in RS where several students had said homosexuality was the worst problem facing humanity 
and should be solved with a gay Hunger Games, with the winner being shot. The school was also very small, with only 13 in my year group. Growing up in this environment as a young gay kid was tough, but I managed to survive and was lucky to be able to escape that environment to go to sixth form in the next town when the time came. It was there that I, for the first time, met other queers and began to realise who I was. And while it took a year of me being there to decide to come out, having those same age role models really began to help me unlearn the horrendous attitudes I'd internalised at school. My coming out was somewhat uneventful in comparison to many stories. My mother didn't quite believe it and while accepting still had some issues about my lack of ability to have a proper family, after I came out to her I told the rest of the family in subsequent weeks and there were no real issues. However, I still needed to come out to my paternal grandparents who were somewhat separate to the rest of my family due to my dad having died when I was three. I went up to visit them for a week when I was 17 and at the time I was in my relationship with my first boyfriend and had decided that now was the time to tell them. I had no idea how they would react as we didn't even have conversations around this type of thing. But I figured them being in their 70s, it wouldn't be positive. So I braced myself for the worst. It was the last day of my visit and I was having a cup of tea with my grandma and I decided now was the time that I needed to do it. And I blurted it out mid-conversation, the classic line of, I've got something to tell you, I'm gay. She paused for a while and then put her cup down and responded, you're gay as in you like men, not women. To which I mumbled, yes. She looked up at me and smirked and then she laughed. And then she said, well, I of all people have no issue with that. It changes nothing for me. I love you regardless and I can't wait to meet your future partner. Then we had a long conversation and it transpired she'd been scared of telling me about large elements of her career as a nurse and her liberal views because of the conservative school I had gone to and the moral understandings I had as a child. It turned out that she was a nurse during the HIV AIDS epidemic and she had looked after many people with that horrendous disease and had had close friends die from it. She also volunteered on the AIDS information phone line and worked with countless queers over the years, many of whom she was still friends with. In fact, the majority of her long-term friends were gay men. I'd just never been introduced to them because she feared my reaction. In some ways, it was a mutual coming out. Both of us scared of each other's reaction because of the potential of rejection. Four years on and we've grown closer, with her being my biggest supporter of the medical career I'm beginning to embark on. Later that day, I also came out to my grandpa. His response, while perhaps less tactful, was unsurprised and equally supportive. Yes, you're gay. Tell me something I don't know. Now, do you want a cup of tea or not? Now we are just as close as I am to my grandma. I'm now in my fourth year at the University of Cambridge training to be a doctor. And I've truly embraced who I am and spend way too much time doing queer things, particularly those related to the LGBT plus history. My involvement there has allowed me to make friends with the older queer generation, some of whom were involved in the HIV AIDS work above and slightly older people who marched in the first Pride March in London. I have been so lucky with how far I've been able to come and my success is only through my ability to be me, a liberty granted by the actions of queer generations and their allies, like my grandma, from previous years. Oh, I loved that, Alex, and you're absolutely right. I so often think about 
the fact that I'm planning a, a wedding and the fact that Alice and I are hoping to have a family and how all of that has come from amazingly brave people that came before us and people that marched for us and their allies. And it's a really important thing to highlight. And actually, I would love to get some people on the show to share their stories who were there at that point. So if anyone knows anyone or if you are someone that would like to share their story or would like to have a chat, please do get in touch. Alex, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that your grandma sounds amazing. What a bloody legend. Okay, our second story this week comes from Lorna. In many ways, my story is very unremarkable and hugely similar to other gay people of my age. I went to secondary school in the 90s, of course under Section 28. LGBTQ plus issues were not discussed and problem pages in the various teen magazines that I read said that gay feelings were a phase. Subsequently, I didn't come out to anyone until I was 22 and I had got my first girlfriend. At the time, my parents weren't happy. They said they would tolerate it, but said they worried about what people would think. They met my girlfriend at the time and they were very pleasant and polite, but there was always some awkwardness. I came to realise the main issue that my mum had was that she thought this would mean that I wouldn't have children. I've been a secondary school teacher for about 14 years now. At the start of my career, I didn't even tell my colleagues that I was gay. My girlfriend was my housemate. This, of course, has evolved and I don't hide my sexuality. In terms of the students I teach, I still don't openly express that I'm gay, but I also don't hide it. If a student asks or it's relevant to the conversation, then I will tell them. What makes me proud of the students that I teach and the school that I work at is how different things are to when I was at school. LGBTQ plus material and support is available and visual around the school. It is contained in our curriculum and pastoral support. We have students across the spectrum who, on the whole, are supported by the rest of our diverse student and staff community. Throughout my 20s and 30s, I've dated a lot. I have loved and lost. I've been the one left heartbroken and done the heartbreaking. Right now, age 36, I'm still single, still looking for the right one. However, I'm six months pregnant. Since my early 30s, I've had an overwhelming feeling that I needed to be a mother. And about three years ago, I made the decision to start looking into fertility treatment in order to achieve this. After many tests and two failures to conceive, I'm now carrying a healthy baby girl and I'm due in August. What I'm currently finding is a new sort of coming out, explaining how I got pregnant and why I made this decision. Everyone in my friendship circle, colleagues and others I have met and told have largely responded with, good for you. And I'm under no illusion that being a single lesbian mum will be the hardest thing I ever have to do. But I am also so excited to raise my daughter to be strong, independent and proud of who she is. I'm incredibly lucky. Firstly, that I can afford the treatment, it was not cheap. And secondly, to conceive at all. My heart breaks for those who are unable to do so. And finally, for the support I have around me. My parents have been incredible. Since the early days of coming out to now, they have had time to deal with my sexuality and become champions of equal rights. They are going out of their way to do everything they can to help me and support me in my pregnancy. I know they're proud of me and I am of them. I also have amazing friends around me, gay, straight, parents and not, and I want to thank each and every one of them. Spending the lockdown on my own and pregnant clearly hasn't been easy with my emotions and hormones running wild, but I know that I'm keeping my baby safe. The immediate future is a little daunting. 
When deciding to be a single mum, I didn't anticipate a worldwide pandemic in the planning, but I know I will have our incredible NHS by my side when my baby arrives. Well, firstly, congratulations, Lorna, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, first of all, it sounds like you're a brilliant teacher. I wish you had been a teacher of mine and I wish that I'd gone to that school. The idea of having visible LGBTQ plus support around the place. I mean, it just makes my heart sing that that's what some schools are like now. And let's hope one day it's what all schools are like. Um, I've got a few friends that are pregnant during lockdown and I can imagine it's really, really tough. So I am sending you my very best. Thanks for getting in touch and I'm delighted that you're enjoying the podcast. Okay, on with today's interview. A couple of months ago, I sat down with Emma Kennedy, whose writing I have enjoyed for years. We had a great conversation about snogging boys, loving girls and Lego. And as you'll hear, we laughed a lot too. Uh, okay, here we are today. I am with writer, actor, at one point solicitor, mastermind champion, celebrity master chef champion, pointless winner. I'm joined by Emma Kennedy. Hello. Hello to you. That's a lot of things. You do lots of things. I do a lot of things, yeah. I can't, I can't stay still for any amount of time. I constantly have to be doing something. And my wife's just going, I, 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 just is, stop, it ever going to, is it ever going to stop? No, no, never, it's never ever. going to stop. So you like, like last year I tried to learn, relearn Latin. So you already you knew it once. Yeah, I did it for A level. Okay, and you thought, do you know what? That'll probably come in useful now. <laughs> Tell you what, my life could it's... do with a bit of Latin. No, what it is is every year I try and set myself a challenge. Okay. And I've got to try and learn something new that year, and it's really useful, and it's really good for mental health and it's just really good for just not sitting in front of a screen all day long well i think talking about doing things you and i have something in common lego um, yes lego <gasps> i love legoing have you seen i'm doing the death spa yes i have and you're doing it without without the, any instructions the, yeah, yeah, yeah that's very clever i've got the i've got the manual of of the death star sure just for basic shape and sure things. sure um, but the kit costs five hundred pounds. That is too much. That is too much money. And I can't justify that. And also, uh, my big issue with the Star Wars Lego. Do you do Star Wars Lego? No, I do the architecture Lego. Meet the creator expert. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> what I my objection with the Star Wars Lego Lego is it's it's too grey. Yes, it's, it is. It's not nice to look at. And that's important. And that's very important to me. So so I have embarked... So I just thought, you know, heck it. Heck it to heck. Absolutely. I'm going to get the Death Star manual, just the instruction manual, which you can buy, like, on eBay and things for, like, 25 quid. You just make it. And then I'm going to make my own Death Star, but I'm I'm going to make my version of it, which is the Death Spa. Great, and, yes. And yep. you will have seen it Yes, I have seen it. Twitter. Little people... <laughs> It, it's got all sorts. Having there's, a lovely time. Yeah, there's a jacuzzi, there's someone having Botox from C-3PO. I've put in a toilet because that's always bothered me about Star Wars. You, there's, you never see a restroom. That's very true. <laughs> you never see, you never see one. True. There's showers, there's a creche, there's a scale electric set, there's a canteen, there's no, a disco, a uh, Emperor Palpatine on the decks... <laughs> Um, and then the upper level, ju I just did the upper level uh, yesterday and that's all admin, like it's human resources, <laughs> things just, like that. Yeah, just the IT room. That keep it all going. Yeah. That keep it running. Yeah. You know. There's a fire drill going on. It's just, that's, that, that's what's going on up there. So I'm about to, I'll probably finish it in a couple of days. 
I love, I love it. it though. I absolutely it's love so it. It's so good, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. Because you know, I have a I have a, a YouTube channel called Relax with Lego. Yes, I do know that. I mean, it's insane. I love it. Um, but but we've just finished the detective's office. Why did you think? What? Why did you start YouTubing it? Because people were asking. Yeah, I love. Literally, that. I think just one person asked me. <laughs> just said, please, please, will you do it? And I said, yeah, all you know right, yeah, all yeah. right, I will. I'm doing it anyway, I may as well do it. Supply and demand. Uh, it's very niche. I would really like to go on that, that TV show about Lego. Oh, Lego it, Masters, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just waiting for the call. Yeah, absolutely. I'm like, why haven't you done Susie, a grown you, sh- you should come and do. you should come and do a guest build in my, in oh, my listen, Lego shed. This is great. For Relax with Lego. I can't wait to relax All right, well, well, we'll do great. that. OK, that's brilliant. Fine. So, um, I'm meant to be talking to you about... I mean, but I'm quite happy to talk about Lego. But can I talk to you about your sitcom? Because I love yes. the Kennedys. Thank so, you. Many years ago, I loved the book that it was based on, The Tent, the Bucket and Me. Yes. So, which, uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, it sort of gives a... It's like a look at a working-class 1970s family. Home. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's start off with saying, what was your childhood like? Um, it was a mixture of in, in sort of incredible and really difficult... My mother, who is still to this day one of the most extraordinary people, how much has she ever liked met? the character that Catherine Parkinson plays in the sitcom? The good Brenda, exactly. Right. Okay. Wow. Um, but there was bad Brenda. Okay. And my mother had um, an un- undiagnosed mental illness all of her life, and we think um, she she died five years ago. Yeah. But we are pretty sure that she had um, paranoid personality disorder. Oh, wow. So when she was, or, or bipolar, I think it was one or the other, so she was, you know, if, if, if you met her on a good day, you would never forget her. You would sure. just never, never, never forget her. You would the absolutely the you love to her. To. Yeah. She was eccentric. She was funny. She was absolutely brilliant. There was nobody that you would rather be around. But when she was having a bad day she was absolutely terrifying so I spent and I was an only child so I spent much of my childhood it it, it was it's sort of like Stockholm syndrome and people who have had a, a parent with mental illness will probably recognize this is that is that you spend pretty much most of your time just making sure you don't annoy the person who can get cross and you don't understand what it is and it took me well into my 30s to understand that she wasn't a bad person she was just unwell and that completely shifted my attitude towards her actually I had a very during my 20s I really really struggled with a relationship with her and then it sort of came back and and then she got cancer for the first time and actually I think that saved us Really? Mm. So do you feel like as a child you were sort of... So Emma in the sitcom yeah. is constantly doing lots of different... Like, you know, at one point she's a little detective. Yeah. Oh, I used to do that all the time. And so you, were you constantly could, putting on characters sort of things? To... I, I used to play Monopoly with myself. That's. I mean, it's, it's I no mean, wonder how much you love Lego. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. I, I was an only child, so mm-hmm. I would play, and I love board games, and I would play them very happily on my own. I mean, can you imagine one child on their own playing Cluedo with themselves? <laughs> that's, that's what I did. That's what I did. But I also, like, I made my own pinball machine. You know, I was constantly on the go mm-hmm. and, and or reading a book or something. 
I mean, that's the, the, there, there are advantages to being an only child, which is you, you have absolutely no concept of sibling rivalry whatsoever. And that actually has continued on in through all of my life. Like, I've, I, I don't begrudge anyone anything. Um, that's, a, that's a great quality. Well, it's because I, d- I don't understand what it is. Yeah. So do you, did you feel like you were an outsider? Yeah, I think that's probably right, yes. I, I was very, like, at school, I was... Uh, I, I think I can say I was, I was very popular at school, but I think that was mostly because I was, I was funny, but also because I, I wasn't part of any single faction. I was very good at, at straddling the bases. I mean, which is what you've done with your career. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the fact that you were funny. Do you think that was sort of in as a reaction to your home life? Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. I loved going to school. Yeah. It was an escape. Mm. Yeah. I realised much later that I was funny in order to mask the fact that I, ne- I didn't have a boyfriend and I didn't want a boyfriend. Yeah. Rather than people being like, I think she's a lesbian. People were like, I think she's funny. Yeah. Which is far preferable yeah. for me. <laughs> I mean, it's still not preferable. I still like, I still hope that they come in equal measure. But you know it's all right to be funny and a lesbian. Well, let's, I've learned this. I mean, I mean, only in the last couple of years. Let's but... just let's just say that out loud. You know, it's it's I okay, the Susie. To say it. Thank you. Yeah. But yeah, did you use it as sort of a defence mechanism? I think I, I think not so much as a defence mechanism. I think I was just genuinely enjoying myself. That's great, yeah. Um and I was member of all the sports teams. You know, I was in the hockey team, I was in the netball team. So I would anything I could do to stay a bit longer at school, I would do it. And were you academic? Yes. Yeah, because you were obviously very bright. But I listened to. A podcast. I'll tell you a story. Please do. So um, I read Jude the Obscure. I think when I was about late sixteen, early seventeen, and. What's extraordinary about that is obviously Jude the Obscure is a very, very, very sad story about a boy from a a village who dreams about going to Oxford and it all ends absolutely disastrously uh, for him and very tragically. But for some reason there was was this scene in that book where he's sitting on a hill and he sees a finger post and it is pointing to Oxford and it just says, thither I go. And it was like fireworks went off in my brain and nobody in my family had ever been to university and I just decided there and then that I was going to go to Oxford and I went to uh, my school and I said oh, I would want to try to Oxford and my English teacher just laughed in my fa- actually laughed in my face laughed laughed and uh, nobody at my school thought I could get in. My parents didn't think I could get in. My mother would take me for walks around the garden and sort of say, you know, you might want to think about applying somewhere else as well, you know, just as backup. And I was like, no, no, so thank you. you only I'm, to Oxford. I'm, I'm going to go to Oxford, thank you. And um, I did it all myself, did all the preparation, did all of it, went off, took myself off for an interview, um, got a conditional offer of two A's and a B, and I thought, well, that's going to be hard, but if I really properly knuckle down, then then I might be able to pull this off. And um, school couldn't believe it. They were literally like, what? Sorry, you've got an offer. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, it's two A's and a B. You know, she'll never get that, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, and I was absolutely determined, and then I went to a disco in Kimpton, a village, village disco, and I kissed a boy whose name I can't even remember and whose face I can't even remember. This is what happens when you kiss boys, Susie. Yes, I've heard. And uh, he gave me glandular fever. <gasps> 
And, and that's I was... how she became a lesbian. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and I guys. Was, well, we'll get to that. I was, <laughs> and I was iller than I've ever been in my life, and I was properly unwell for the best part of a year. Oh, for and a year. I didn't really get out of bed for two months, <gasps> and um, it was it was extraordinary. And the school going, look, don't take your A levels. And I was going, no, I'm going to take my A-levels. Because I've got to and, go to Oxford. And I took my A-levels and I fell asleep during um, a history paper and I got an A and a B and a C. And with that, it was just like, it's over, forget it, forget it, it's over, it's over, dream's over. And I didn't even put myself into clearing. That's how devastated I was. And instead I went to work in a hotel and I got a job as a washer-upper and I did well at that, so I was promoted to vegetable peeling. And I did well at that, and I was promoted to, you know, prepping salads and, and things for puddings. So I thought, this is all right, I'm earning a wage, doing pretty well. Uh, I've got a, a woman who's 42, she's got four children, she's taught me how to drink alcohol. This is marvellous, <laughs> this is absolutely marvellous. I'll just stay here now, I'll just work in the hotel forever. And I bumped into my old English teacher, who was called Mrs Graby, who had retired just before I had uh, got ill, so she didn't know what had happened. And she said, oh, you must be going off to university. And I sort of stared at my shoes and I went, no, I'm not, not going. And she looked at me and she said, Emma, you were the best English student I have ever had. And then she said something to me that has stayed with me to this day. She said, Emma, anybody can give up. It's the easiest thing in the world. Never give up. And she gave me her number and she said, if you want to try again then you come and see me. And I, and in that moment, I felt ashamed that I had set myself a goal and i just really easily given up on it. And so I took her up on her offer and I used to go on the bus and see her once a week and she'd give me, like, a cake or a sandwich and a cup of tea and we would talk about books and plays and poems and then she packed me off again for another interview and I got in. Amazing. It was a really, really important moment in my life. And what's extraordinary about that, it isn't just that that the power of one person believing in you can do mm. to your self-esteem. It's also about understanding that life is full of setbacks, but you just pick yourself up and you get on. Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. I had a teacher at school that was... I really wanted to go to this specific college that did drama. And they were really good and they had a really good rate for getting people into drama school. And so I said to him, I really want to go to Chichester College. It's the best place for me to go. But I've to go onto this BTEC course to do drama to then get into drama school. I've got to get, I think it was like five C's, which I did get in the end. But at that point, I was very naughty at school and I didn't do my work. You do surprise me. Uh, <laughs> I had a lot of chat. <laughs> I just didn't remember a teacher saying to me, uh, Susie Ruffle, you will not make any money out of just showing off. Sit down. I mean, I feel like I caught him. <laughs> In your face, I think yeah. you'll find I will, yeah. and I am. Yeah, I remember him saying to me, well, if you're going to be the successful actress, uh, you'll need maths for uh, to count all your money. And I said, if I'm a successful actress, I'll probably be able to afford an accountant. <laughs> so I just think I was a nightmare to teach. Oh, God, it was awful, I hated it. But I had this one teacher called Mr Griffiths who would always... He would always be quite hard with me on, like, sort of my mocks and my essays and stuff like that, and it was because he... 
who knew that I would then get a better grade. But once I literally stormed into his office and went, you've got to be kidding me, whilst uh, into his classroom while he was teaching. He was like, Susie Ruffy, you might not have realised that you're not my only pupil. Please wait outside. What? what? Exactly. What, what are you talking about? But he was the only, the only person that, at school that made me think that I could do anything. Yeah. And when I got into drama school, I went back to see him at school. Mm. Just, like, turned up at his office. I was like, hello, mm. sorry, and thanks, it goodbye. Is, it is amazing. I remember once I was, I was asked to go and do, um, uh, like, a workshop at a school and I, I took some some sketches for the kids to perform and there was this one little boy, well, it wasn't that little, it was about 13, and to, to, to not put too fine a point on it, he was an absolute little shit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and um, he was, you know kicking off all during the day he was making things difficult blah 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 and I deliberately gave him the hardest but also the funniest sketch to perform and he kept saying I can't I can't do it I can't do it I can't do it and I took him to one side and I just looked him straight in the eye and I said I wouldn't be giving the hardest thing to you if I didn't think you weren't the person who could pull it off and it was weird because in that moment you could see in his eyes that no one had ever said anything like that to him before. And I was told, and he performed it and he performed it brilliantly and everyone was laughing and it was that moment when the bad kid in the class who everyone doesn't like that much is suddenly everyone is laughing at them and enjoying it. And, and enjoying being around and them. And enjoying being around them. And I got a letter from the, the headmaster um, uh, about a month later and that they'd had a big school assembly and that he had performed the sketch to the entire school. Wow. And he, and he just said it's completely turned him around. Isn't that great? Isn't that, that amazing? It's, it's just one person's thinking that you can do it. Mm. Uh, what was Oxford like? Did you love it when she I got there? I absolutely loved it. I was a bit worried going up because I was uh, obviously had come from a state school Yes, and I was a, and I'd never been around what I would call posh people. Mm-hmm. Even though you've got quite a posh voice, I've got. Well, I think that's just because I've lived in this in the southeast for right, all sure, of sure, my sure. life. So yeah, I was worried, a little bit sort of worried. But but then again, I I I've never found it difficult making friends or or being sociable. I'm a very sociable mm. beast. So that bit of it didn't worry me. I had one bad encounter in my first week with somebody who'd either been to Eton or Harrow or somewhere like that, and he asked me what school I'd been to, and I just said Hitching Girls. Because that was the school you were. the school I went to. And um, and he just looked at me and he said, oh, I haven't heard of that. And he said, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have done it. It's like a comprehensive school, so you probably wouldn't have heard of it, no. And then he just looked at me and he said, do you realise my... My father paid for your education through his taxes. I just thought, oh my word! And then so I just looked at him and I said, "How do you how do you feel like knowing your parents paid all that money for your education?" And we're uh, in the same place. and we're in the same place. Brilliant! I love that. And uh, you were in sort of quite a funny gang at uni. Is that fair to yes. say? Yes. Yes. So this so this is another weird thing. So if I had got into Oxford the first time, then I would have read history at St Catherine's and I would have been in the same year as Richard Herring, Okay, We would have been in the same tutorial group. As it was, I deferred, changed my mind to do English 
and my tutorial partner was Stuart Lee. Now, if that's not fate, yeah. I, I don't know what is. And did you revel in being in that sort of fun? Because I can imagine that's... You know, when you sort of imagine that that sort of like university outset with all those funny people... And oh, being it was perhaps... crazy. I, yeah. I was there at the same time as Armando Iannucci, Dave Schneider. Yeah. So it was sort of extraordinary times. And... I can remember it was it was Stuart's fault that I got into it properly, really, because up until, well, even during the whole of university, even though I performed comedy and loved, 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 loved it, it didn't even occur to me that I was able to then go on and do that as a job. When I first started realising I was funny, it does feel like a superpower. Mm. When you can make people laugh, mm. it's such a joyful thing. I love, I absolutely love being a comic because I think I'm so lucky mm. that I get to just muck yeah. about on stage and tell and yeah. retell these stories from my. It, it from certainly my helps making friends. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, definitely. And also, if you can laugh at yourself as well. I mean, people that can't laugh at themselves oh, is I mean, a real. Get over it, really. It's a real issue, isn't oh, it? It's a Lord real issue. I have a, it, it, it. Whenever I, if ever I meet someone and I and I don't like them. It's invariably because they take themselves too seriously. I mean, what do you do with that? So I read in an article, you wrote, um, that your younger self snogged boys like it was going out of fashion. Yes. You're very into snogging boys. I, I could not be stopped. <laughs> Except by glandular fever. I mean, it was just unbelievable. <laughs> uh, every Friday or Saturday, there, there was always a, a village disco going on. I was snogging mad. Here's the thing, Susie. Go on. I didn't understand on any level, that I was gay. And I thought about this coming here mm. today. I definitely, definitely fancied boys. There's mm -hmm. no doubt about that. But I was in love with girls. Nightmare. But I didn't understand. And is it because you sort of... Um... I had no references. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I was, I, was, I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s and there were no... No gay women to look up to. None. None. And so there were, I had no point of reference, mm. absolutely none. And I knew that there were... Like, there was a girl in the year above me at school who I was clearly in love with mm. but didn't understand yeah. what it was. Those intense friendships. Just, just thought, oh, it's just I'm, I'm having another lovely, intense friendship. <laughs> Another lovely, intense yeah. friendship. And there was... That sounds like a But there was no novel. kissing or hand-holding or anything physical whatsoever. It was just very, very romantic. And you just liked like being we, in her presence. We would write to each other every day. And then, you know, the letter would, would land on the... I mean, it was so romantic. But there was no, there was no mention of I love you or anything like that. But we clearly did love yeah. each other. And so at what point did the penny drop? Well, I think when I was 27. Really? Yeah, it took that long. Wow, that I, is... I, I, I went through all of university... Still snogging boys? Still snogging boys and having sex with boys... and but, but being completely in love with one person who was a woman. But again, <laughs> it was just like, oh, look, and it's a lovely, lovely. intense <laughs> friendship. <laughs> It's a lovely, lovely, <laughs> lovely, intense friendship. Can you please write a book called really The Lovely super, Intense Friendship? Yeah, that just, that's just bliss. <laughs> oh, look, we're going on another picnic. Yeah, It's so romantic. I love it. Was it. So, it was like a proper old Jane Austen romance. 
Yeah, and I would have died for her. Didn't even cross my mind to, to even say the were word any, lesbian. Were there lesbians? I mean, assuming there were, but were there lesbians at Oxford that you well, were like... There must have been. There I must d- have been, but you didn't I come across know. them. No, no. There you go. I can remember that there was a hoo-ha one day at college because um, the boy I was going out with, I mean, I mean, what does this tell you? <laughs> I had a boyfriend. Sure. We all um, have, sure. We all have one of those. In my first year at university and I really liked him and we liked got, being the most important we, word yeah, in that sentence. and we got on really really well and we had great fun and, and everything and blah blah didn't have sex we only snogged you're, you're fine you're fine with that but I was fine with that anyway we went to a ball and uh, and we went as I was as a four with the with the girl I was having a lovely intense friendship <laughs> with I mean of course we did because really I wanted to go to the ball with, with ah, my of course. With, so of course and we lost we lost our male partners oh Kelsey please yeah oh damn <laughs> Kelsa, it please we just sort of wandered off on our own to have fun picnic, and blah presumably. blah yeah and um we'd all dumped our stuff in this room and uh it was about i don't know about 6:30 in the morning and 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 we decided oh that's it we'll we'll get our, go and get our stuff and we walked into this room and froze because it was immediately apparent that two people were in bed and at it and uh my boyfriend had enormous feet that i could pick out in a lineup uh, of a thousand feet probably probably a million feet i could pick them out in a lineup because they're so enormous and distinctive and we, so we stood in this corridor and we said, we're really sorry, we've got to come in and get our stuff, so just cover yourself up, do, do what you need to do. And there was some shuffling. And we walked into the room and, like, we're desperately trying to find our bags and things. <laughs> I love that announcement. Don't then, worry, yeah, just cover yourself. And then I turned round and just saw, like, there were clearly people in bed with duvet overheads and I just saw these feet sticking out the end and a naked man on the floor in the fetal position. <laughs> and I thought, oh, oh, OK. Okay, and he came out as gay that day. So I don't know. I don't know what on earth two gay people were doing going out with each other. Do you, Susie? No, Raphael? I've got no idea. No. I've got no idea. But um, it it didn't. It took me another probably five six years to properly understand what was going on with me. Is I I was miserable. I didn't didn't really want to go out with anyone. Like I didn't go out with anyone during law school, and I felt a bit lost and didn't really know who I was. And and then basically, a, some some bird just took me to Whitstable and did me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened. Someone else just took it upon themselves to just go. Oh, to you're, just go, come, on. come on, come, come on. on, let's go, let's get at let's it. Let's go to bloody Whitstable. Let's get at it. I love that. You know, it was it was so clearly must have been so clearly obvious that I was a total gay, but but you were the last person it, it, to realise. I was the last person to realise. So when you told your parents, were they like, "Oh, yeah, that makes sense"? Well, I actually tried coming out twice. Sure. And once was once didn't work so well. Right. Um, and I just and I just and I just said, um, "I don't think I'm going to get married." One Sunday lunch, to my mum and dad. And my dad just said, uh, "I just want you to be happy." And that sort of felt as if it might have, it, it might have gone in, but it didn't quite. Right. Okay. Yeah. So then the next thing that happened was um, my, my my mother just found me in bed with a woman. 
Oh, wow, that is a great way... To, well, I mean, that's... Well, they had keys to my flat and they would constantly be letting themselves in. I mean, it was... It was... It was... It was... It was unconscionable, really. But that's how I it happened. I they just... Yeah. Well, they just popped to London yeah, just and... popped in. Oh, hello. Mm. <laughs> well, at least, at, least, at least they... I mean, that wouldn't... Hello. They wouldn't have let, left too hello much... There. ..doubt in your parents' brain after that, no, I suppose. I mean, it's I've, a very clear I, way of doing it. I think they, they probably knew all along. So... Did you have like a big? Once you had realised that you were gay mm. when you were twenty-seven, did mm. you have like, after all these like long, romantic, intense, yes. lovely times? Yes. Did you have, you know, a first love? Was that sort of magical because of the sort of massive? Lead I had. Up? I had. Get ready for this. Great. I had. Um, I had a a, a, f- a first bang. <laughs> yeah. And that turned out to be somebody who was leaving forever to live in Germany, <gasps> and she had written a list of everything she wanted to do before she left the United Kingdom forever. And number one on her list was sleep with Emma Kennedy. <gasps> I didn't know this, but anyway, that's that's how it happened. It couldn't have been more contrived. She 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 literally I was, I was just on her list of things to do Dump. before she left the country and she made it happen. So, you know, thank but thank you. Thank you. Thank you because but... I finally sort of went, "Oh, okay. That is good." Um <laughs> so my first proper love, are you ready? Yes, very. Was Sue Perkins. I sort of thought it was, yeah. Yeah. She was my first big 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 love, yeah. And so when was that? Was that like in the that 2000s. was that was it was before she was famous, um, so that would have been late nineties. Because you were you were you writing on late lunch? Is that how? Yeah, yeah. Great show. Yeah, great bloody show. Yeah. No, it happened before then. It was it was before she was famous. So I was oh, living right. in Hampstead, and I had gone up to Edinburgh to see, uh, and I was supposed to be staying with Richard Herring, and he sure. and he forgot about me and didn't turn up. <laughs> And in fact, I will go back a little bit previously. The first time I ever met Perks was down in Putney and it was the boat race and I had gone down there and I was standing with a friend and this woman came up and said, oh, have you seen Sally Phillips? Because I, I was at college with Sally Phillips. Oh my, I would love to have been and your she was scratching her, And she was scratching her neck. And uh, and I genuinely thought before she said the words, have, uh, "I'm looking for Sally Phillips. Have you seen her?" Um, I genuinely thought she was a tramp asking for a cigarette. <laughs> genuinely, genuinely thought she was a tramp asking for a cigarette. Um, but it wasn't. It was Sue Perkins. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so then when I was waiting for Richard Herring up in Edinburgh. Uh, you thought there's that trend. Perks, per, <laughs> Perks came up again. She was and she it was the first year she was doing a show with Mel, and we just spent the evening together and we just had an absolute blast. We were just laughing, 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 laughing. And Rich Terring didn't turn up, so she said, "Come and stay with me and Mel." So I went to stay with them for a week. Um, for a week, not just like for no, the night until you see Richard yeah, tomorrow. Yeah, stayed with them for a week. Yeah, slept on the floor. Yeah. So that was sort of the start of us getting to know each other, and then it just so happened that uh, Perks and Nicola Walker and Sarah Phelps were moving into the house of a friend of theirs 
that belonged to the the friend's parents that that they that they just wanted people to live in because it was going to be knocked down and they didn't want squatters to move in. Right, okay. okay. And that was also in Hampstead, so it was about a five minute walk from where I was. Fate. And none of them were working. And I would sort of go round, and I, this was when I was working as a solicitor, and I would go round with bags of shopping from Sainsbury's and accidentally leave them there so that I knew they were eating. That's so kind. Because they just had nothing. They had nothing. And um, that was the start of it. That's so sweet. Yeah, and I left my, my posh flat and moved in to the, to the house with no heating that had mushrooms around the toilet and... You That's had love. no, and it had no, had no washing machine. Um, we used to make pant soup. We used to just tip all our <laughs> pants into the bath <laughs> and pour hot water over them. That was how we cleaned our pants. I mean, it was just extraordinary. There, there was no, there was no, there was no oven. There, there was just a two just ring, a like a two ring, camping thing that we would cook on. And Nicola had was once one day she was sent a fiver by Jilly Cooper. And we glued it on the wall and made a pack that we would never, ever, ever spend Jilly Cooper's fiver. Why did Jilly Cooper send her a fiver? I think Nicola had written to her asking. For a fiver? It's for money. (laughs) (laughs) Do actors do that sometimes? Have you never had those letters from people who are about to go to the RADA or something? Yeah, I've heard about them. Please, can you send me some money? Thanks. Anyway, Jilly Cooper sent a fiver. But but we then, we all stuck together for ages, the the, the four of us. I mean, can you imagine me and Perks and Nicola Walker and Sarah Phelps? If you don't know who Sarah Phelps is, she's the person who writes all the Agatha Christie things that are on at Christmas and Easter, and she's absolutely amazing. Um, but we were all in this house and we, we lived together for about five years. Oh, and we had uh, the, the next house we moved on to, we had a, a landlady um, who every single Friday we would receive a box from Harvey Nichols that was from her. And it was like we'd have things like sausages and biscuits in it. We couldn't believe it. And um, But just because she was nice. Once a month and once a month she would, we would have to go for supper with her and we would stand in the hall and she would come down on a Stanner stairlift in a turban blowing a hunting horn. She was amazing, but she always always served us absolutely stone-cold soup. So every time we had to go for dinner, it was a struggle. It was The struggle was real. Um, but, that... yeah, it was amazing. There was one dinner I remember, I was sitting next to a Polish war hero, and he was sort of in his late 80s. As you do. And he spent the entire time just feeling me up under the table. And I just, and I kept thinking to myself, now, what do I do in this situation? Yeah. Do I, you know, slap his hand away, tell him off, stop him, make a scene? He's 85. Just crack on. <laughs> Enjoy, just enjoy. Thank you, thank you for what you thank did you during World service. War Two. Please enjoy my thigh. Yes, thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that. You've got. Um, I mentioned before that you've had lots of jobs. Yes. Not not being filled filled up being one of the jobs. Yeah. Uh, but writing, acting. Um, you obviously a solicitor for uh, for five years. I was. was I had a I had a secretary called Madge. I love that. Yep, I loved her. Every morning would basically start with Madge crying 
um, over something or other to do with a boyfriend. So right, we would sure. have, you know, she'd bring me in a coffee and she would have a, a face. I would all, I, w- I got very good at recognising the face, which meant, please ask please me ask how me I what's am. Happening, yeah. yeah. And then she'd sit down and we'd sort that out. And that would be the first thing I would do on most days. Um, but yeah, I was a so not proper, a lot of litigation. <laughs> I was a proper solicitor. I was a litigator as well. So I was, I was. At the at the sharp end of taking people to court or, or defending people, yeah. Yeah, I read in something that you said often after you'd have a meeting with someone, and obviously a litigator oh, say yes. like, "We'll take them, we'll take them," and you'd be like, "Yeah, I don't know, let it go, it? just let it go." I I was part of a team that that changed the law on self defence for battered women who had been sent to prison for murder oh, when wow. really they should have been sent for manslaughter. Um, got women out of jail who had been... There was was one case that will stay with me forever. Um, It was a woman who had been uh, a battered wife uh, for 20-plus years. And her husband was so violent towards her that she started putting a Valium in his dinner to calm him down so that he wouldn't hurt her. And one evening, he attacked her again... And, I mean, the, the the pictures of her that, it, I mean, they were just horrific, absolutely horrific. She was battered black and blue. And they stumbled into the kitchen while he was beating her up and she reached for a knife and, and thrust at him to get him away and that was it, it killed him. Now, you can't excuse killing him, but the reason she was sent away for murder was because at, at that time the self-defence rule was you can only react with like force. So if someone's hitting you with fist, you can only respond oh, with fist. Oh, OK. The minute you reach for something else, you could, you know, forget it. It's a it. different thing. And also, he had Valium in his system. So uh, the prosecution said, no, you gave him Valium. You drugged him and because, him. because you drugged him in order to stab him. Um, and she was found guilty of murder and was sent away for the rest of her life. And she was clearly no danger to the public or anybody. And we... Um, we took on her appeal and we ch- we got the, the, the law changed on self-defence and, and she, we had her reduced to manslaughter and she was released. So that, that was amazing. So you were doing... Um, so that was amazing. There were parts of it that you enjoyed. But then I had, and I had another client um, who was uh, an incredible woman. She was a, a, a midwife from Bradford and she's quite famous. She's called Lindis Percy. I can name her, I think, because she's she's like a... Google her. She, she was in Greenham Common... And she spent the early 90s and late 90s just doing peaceful protests on American air bases uh, in, around the country. And at, and at that time, you, she could just walk on. Yeah. She could just walk onto the air bases. They, they should have been paying her to find, <laughs> to find out all the weak spots. It was unbelievable. So invariably, most Mondays or weekends, I would get a call, Lindis has been arrested again on this American airbase, blah, blah, blah. But they couldn't send her down for trespass because uh, the, the laws of trespass at that time were, you know, you had to prove that, that this person was intent on stealing something or damaging something. There, there, were, there were various criteria before you could sue someone for, for trespass. And she didn't satisfy any of the, the criteria because all she did was just quietly wander about. She actually <laughs> got into the cockpit of a, of a jet at one point, and she just wrote little messages of, of peace with lipstick on the, on the inside I of the windscreen. I mean, she's sort, of, she, she's sort of amazing. Anyway, the Conservative government of the time 
had just about had enough of her. So they changed, they introduced a law of aggravated trespass simply to put her away. It was simply wow. to put Lindis Percy in jail. That's amazing. Mm. I worked on the moat libel trial as well with Keir Starmer. Did you? Yes, yes. He's a very impressive person. Yes, I think so too. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah, so that was my, my, my days your of other being jobs. a lawyer. You also, my favourite title of job that you've had is yes. Fun Editor at Tatler. Fun Editor at Tatler, yeah. What was that? That was good. Um, I basically, Did you still a lesbian ball? Yes. Yes, yeah. there was a lesbian ball. The, the, the editor of Tatler uh, hired me as the fun editor of Tatler and she just loved me so much she decided she was going to have a lesbian ball. Oh, can you do another one, um, it, it was It was awesome. Yeah, it, it was sounds great. absolutely awesome. So what did you do as the fun editor? I just had fun. <laughs> <laughs> she had fun and wrote about it. That's it was brilliant. mostly just games and things. I just, That's I just, I love, I love a good game. Um, okay, a couple more questions uh, before I let you, before I allow you to leave. Um, you married your partner Georgie, yes. in two thousand and fifteen. Yes, is that right? Um, is it true that she brings you a boiled egg every morning? Not every morning, okay. but she, she, she will pretty much every morning say, "Do you want an egg?" And then she'll poach it, and then she will give it to me. Yeah. Do you think that's the secret to a happy marriage? I mean, it could be a contributory factor. Sure. I think the secret to a happy marriage, because we're very, very different people, me and Georgie. She has a very, very important job. She manages Little Mix. Oh, and, I knew that she was a manager. Uh, yeah. I didn't know she managed Little She's Mix. She's a music manager. She manages Little Mix and, and Alison Moyer. Amazing. And... Um, so I, I sort of feel I share her with with with, with little, little mix, mix with the little mix. Her job involves it, it never stops. It's you know, she will she will be at home, but she has to be on her phone or, yeah. or whatever. She's constantly sorting things out. But I th I think the secret of a of a successful marriage is two things. Mm -hmm. It's allowing the person you're with to be the person they want to be, and understanding that you can just go off and do your own things and it's fine. You don't have to always do everything together. I think it's very important for both of us. She understands my job and I understand hers. Yeah. And I think if you have a job in this industry or in any creative industry, if the person you're with has no understanding of it or what is required of it sometimes, I think that can be difficult. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's... Um, Alice and I have very different jobs. As I mentioned before, she does something with finance, which I don't fully understand. She quite liked comedy before me, mm. but now she's, she's mm. sort of quite into it and she'll mm. watch a lot of the stuff with me. But I knew that she was probably definitely the best person for me in the world when I had one of the biggest gigs of my career in front of about 3000 people for telly mm. and it was a, and it was one of the one of the best gigs i had that year so it was like everything lined up perfectly yeah. and uh we Kate went home and she said um it's very impressive watching you with all those people but i really prefer you in your pajamas having a ginger nut yeah and i thought oh that's yeah it's true i i i think the the hard the thing. i think the hardness sometimes comes with if you're with somebody who's a a star well um is being ignored yes and I think the, the the trick to that is you need to be... If, if you are a famous person and you're regularly on television and you're also in that category of people love you 
and people want to come up to you and talk to you all the time. Blah, yeah, blah, I mean, blah, I don't blah, have blah, that, blah. but that'd be lovely, well, yeah, sure. Yet, <laughs> um, the, it's very hard on the person you're with because people won't even look at you. They won't uh, even yes. look at you, they won't even acknowledge you, they don't want to know anything about you. And you just have to stand there and take it. Yeah, it's horrid. And that's tough. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to be confident in yourself. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's definitely true. And understand that it's, you know, fame's a game. Oh, God, yeah. Um, I'll ask you my final question, which I ask absolutely everybody. Yeah, go on. Um, if you could pick up the phone and ring... Was it actually called Jessup Square where you Jessup grew up? Jessup Road. Jessup Road, right. But Jessup Square, we change it to Jessup Square for the series, yeah. Yeah, so if you could pick up an imaginary phone mm. and um, telephone Emma in... Jessup Road oh, when she yes. was about maybe 10 yes what advice would you give her about what's coming up don't go out with Claudia <laughs> we'll leave it there perfect <laughs> well I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation um, I'm sure you did too uh, Emma Kennedy a brilliant chat and uh, so funny and beware Claudia we've all learnt something uh, any Claudia's listening no offence. So at the end of Mossin's episode a few weeks ago, we shared some book recommendations and a listener has got in touch this week to add a book to that list that he thinks some of us might enjoy. So it's called Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story by Jacob Tobia. He said that it's fresh and funny and it's a beautiful book about gender that everyone should read. So thank you, Stephen, for getting in touch. That is going on my must-read list. As ever, thank you so much for listening to Out With Susie Ruffle. If you'd like to, please share, rate and review. You know the score. And if you want to get in touch, please do. I'm loving receiving these emails. They are really perking me up in lockdown. And everyone that I've received, I've, I've loved reading. And I'm going to share as many as I possibly can before the end of the series. Uh, the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. Until next week, um, I hope you're doing okay. And I'll speak to you then. Bye.